We're wrapping up Ephesians 5 this week. When Paul began this letter, he put the gospel front and center for us. He identified the irreversible and tragic news that faces all humanity, plagues all creation, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. But God redeems. God redeems the elect by His greatness, by His grace, and for His glory. He transforms the elect. He transforms those that He has redeemed, making us into new and living creatures. It's an incredible reality that is often difficult for us as human beings to fully appreciate. As new creatures, as new creation. We live and breathe and behave differently. We live and behave distinctly from the world in which we reside. In chapter 5, Paul instructs us at the very outset that we should be imitators of God. As new creatures, we should be imitators. We should emulate God. Now, that's, that's a mouthful, right? That's a huge expectation. He says believers should walk in love as Christ has loved. He says that we should avoid impurity, immorality, all sorts of greed and covetousness. I would describe these taboos that are forbidden as sins of discontentment. Being discontent, questioning what we have, where we are, looking for more. This is the... the, the, thing that plagues us as human beings. We're always looking for more. We're always looking for different. He says that believers are to walk as children of light. We talked about this extensively last week. Reflect the light, he says, and also expose the darkness. Now this week, as we take that, uh, if we might call it, theoretical truth, And figure out how to apply it. What does this mean for us? How are we able to do this? What does such living really look like? And for the balance of the chapter here from verses 15 through 21, Paul offers us two primary ways that we may be effective light bearers in this world. First, he tells us that we should be wise or that we should pursue wisdom. And then secondly, he tells us to be spirit-filled. He admonishes us to be spirit-filled. So let's unpack these together this morning in the time that we have. As we think, first of all, Paul says we are to be wise. There's a clear contrast presented in these verses. He pits foolishness against wisdom. Unwise versus wise living. Now, if you looked up these terms in a dictionary, here's what you would find. Wisdom is described as the soundness of action or decisions regarding the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. Foolishness is the lack of good sense or judgment or stupidity. I didn't call you stupid. I said that's what the dictionary said is how you define foolishness, right? Abundance of foolishness, folly among 8 billion people is breathtaking, isn't it? Now, 
loosen up just a little bit. You all look like you're scared to death that something is getting ready to fall out of the ceiling on you. The foolishness that we see in our world is staggering at times. Let me just give you a couple of examples of things that I ran across this week. I read where some people were arrested for trying to cook chicken in a thermal pool in Yellowstone Park. Now that water gets to 400 degrees. Ample heat, I guess, to cook chicken. But people have died from the burns that they incur from those hot pools. I read this week about a recent warning to people who were cooking chicken in NyQuil. It puts a new slant on uh, chicken broth when you have a cold, right? I don't know why anyone would take NyQuil, let alone use it to cook their food in. But the ingredients in NyQuil are extremely dangerous when heated to boiling. Deadly even. Foolish? Maybe so. Super intelligent scientists deny God's existence, they say, because there is no evidence. And yet those same scientists, some I read about, believe in UFOs and admit there is no evidence. Every day presents innumerable opportunities to be wise or to be foolish. Biblical wisdom, we would define this way, is a capacity that seeks and is able to understand or see life from God's perspective. Let me read that again. Biblical wisdom is a capacity that seeks and is able to understand or see life from God's perspective. Now, what does wise living look like according to Paul? Paul gives us three specific examples or ways here to walk wisely. First of all, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully how you walk. We know from previous studies that this word walk is not talking about just taking a hike from point A to point B, but it encompasses how you do life, the complete and absolute totality, entirety of life, 24-7, 365 days a year. He says, watch carefully how you live and behave all the time. Watch this word carefully means with precision, with exactness. Watch with precision, exactness. In other words, we might say it this way. Pay attention, right? Pay attention to the way that you are living your life. Now, this requires patience, attention to detail. It requires critical thinking. It requires counting the cost. Not things that we do very well as a rule, right? These are not things that I do well in my daily life. It's like this. Where would you prefer to drive? Would you prefer to drive on a winding, narrow road with lots of congested traffic moving about? Or would you like to be on like an eight-lane freeway? Now, some of you, if you've got plenty of time, you might enjoy that slow drive through the narrow, winding road. Or let's boil it down a little bit more. Would you prefer to drive the narrow streets of inner New Orleans with a big truck 
Or would you prefer to drive the open freeway in a sports car? I think we like the freeway better. I think we like to drive with the pedal to the metal and not have to pay attention to the closeness, the exactness of where we are and what we're doing. We like to carry on our conversations, listen to our music, maybe even listen to a book, check the rear view occasionally, stay in one lane, usually it's the left lane, set the cruise control, and kind of kick back. Maybe take a nap, right? But when you get into those narrow, winding, crooked streets of an inner city, an old inner city with more vehicle than you need in there, it's painstakingly slow. You have to look carefully. You have to know exactly how you're turning. This is what Paul says life is. This is the way we should look to operate our lives. The old carpenter saying is measure twice, cut once, right? I always measure three times, cut once, and then have to go back to Home Depot and buy it again and do it all over. <laughs> Somebody else feels my pain. Thank you. Uh, over the next few days, there are going to be lots of you, your children, your grandchildren, are going to be opening packages. And if you're one of those people that buys gifts that require assembly, shame on you. I want to ask you, when you get those things that require assembly, how many of you are going to actually sit down and read the instructions all the way through before you start? Yeah, I didn't think so. We just want to jump in and do it, right? We think this is no sweat. We don't read the instructions until, well, we have to. We don't want to get bogged down in the details. When you write formal papers or articles or a book for publication, it is painstakingly tedious to keep reading and proofing and finding these errors that are always there. Just this week, my lack of detailed attention caused Nathan to almost have a heart attack Wednesday night. He came into my office 30 minutes before Bible study. He was due to teach. And he said, what did you teach last week? And I told him. And he said, so I need to take this. The schedule you gave me says take the next chapter. And I said, well, the schedule's always right. That didn't fit his plans. But see, I made a mistake, an error on the schedule because I didn't pay close enough attention. Paul says we must watch carefully with precision how we live. Think carefully, critically about the implications of decisions and choices. Our culture is not doing that, is it? I mean, we can pull up countless examples. The LGBTQ plus revolution, gender-affirming techniques, medicines, counseling, therapy, all these things... We're not thinking about the long-term consequences. We're living in the moment. We're thinking about immediate desires and feelings and sentimentality and whims. And the long-term consequences are going to be devastating to individuals and to our society. This is not looking carefully how you walk. This is being careless and foolish. Wisdom encourages us to slow down, take the time, make the time and the effort to view life as God sees life. 
Not only are we to look carefully, he says, but we are to redeem the time. Make the best use of the time, the ESV says. The NIV says it this way, making the most of every opportunity. Literally, to buy or rescue something out or away from a condition or a situation, particularly in regards to the law and its curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us, He bought us, He has rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy us back from being under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. By the time away from something that has a grip on it. Now, what has a grip on it? He says the days are evil. The days, the times, the age in which we live, the world in which we live, this creation is fallen, it's broken, it's, it's led by the enemy himself. And he has a grip on the times. Ephesians 2.2, the course of this world is aligned with the devil. Paul instructs us to buy this present time out of bondage to evil. To redeem it. Do not allow evil to maintain its grip on our time. Have you heard the saying, I'm just killing time? We've all said it eventually. I was in a store the other day. I didn't want to be bothered by the clerk. I was just wandering around. Had some things in my mind that I was trying to sort out. This is the way I fix things. You know, I walk through and look at stuff and, well, how could I use that, right? It's not a healthy way to do it. That's why I have to go back three times. But I'm walking around and someone says, can I help you? And I said, I'm just killing time, right? Unfortunately, we do live our lives this way. The intentions may be benign, but there's a more serious reality here. Once this moment is spent, it's gone. You can't ever retrieve it. It's not coming back. You may get more money if you lose money. You may get another car if you damage it. You may get another phone if you drop it and break it. But you cannot get time back. So how do I spend time? Am I guilty of idly wasting time? Do I allow evil use of time? Do I go out and get high? Experiment with drugs? Or other things that are just a waste of time? Am I destructive with time? Am I looking, as Paul warns us against, into sexual immorality, promiscuity, or pornography? These are the ways that the enemy uses to keep a grip on time. We should determine to use time for what pleases the Lord. Look back in verse 10, here in chapter 5. He says, And try to discern what is pleasing, what is pleasing to the Lord. You can't buy time in bulk at Costco, can you? It is something we must do moment by moment as it arises. You can't ever get it back. You can't move too far ahead. You just have to take as is and make wise choices and decisions in the moment. Examine our steps precisely and redeem and rescue the time for God. Now, we could go through any number of things 
just as a practical exercise of how you might redeem time. If you're sitting in the doctor's office, you could sit in there and thumb through magazines, or you could watch the mindless drivel that circulates on the TV overhead, or you could just sit there and twiddle your thumbs or surf the Internet. And maybe that's a constructive use of time. Or maybe you could just carry a book with you that has more constructive uses in your life. Maybe a biography that's inspiring or entertainment. We get sucked into entertainment that maybe is crude and hateful and sensual. Or listen to something that's God-honoring. Read the lyrics and study them and meditate them. Develop a hobby that can enable you to serve others. You can engage in social media, observe a contentious argument, or maybe tune off from that and contact a friend just to encourage them for a few moments. Now, I'm not saying that you should never visit social media, read a novel, or watch a movie. I'm not saying that you should never watch television or play a video game or take part in other activities. But does evil hold leverage in your life with any of these things? How is your life characterized? This is not intended to be a guilt trip. It's a challenge for all of us to examine how we live and are we redeeming the time from this evil age in which we live. If Jesus were to come and spend tomorrow with me and I knew ahead of time, I rest promise you my day would look different than it's going to look normally. Right? And yours would too. I would be more keen to try to please Him with my living. And the sad truth for most of us that we have to admit today, He is walking with us, whether you acknowledge that or not, daily, all the time, if you're in Him. So does my life reflect this reality? Wisdom, Paul says, is looking carefully how we walk. Wisdom is redeeming the time that we might please God. And wisdom is living obediently. Understand what the will of God is, he says. He warns us not to be foolish, rather to understand. It's more than cognitive comprehension at this point. This is applied knowledge. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. I want you to follow along. I'm going, to read, um, I'm going to read this chapter. And I want you to follow along and pay attention to where you see the word, words, wisdom, or understanding, or things of that nature. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding... Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, and if you seek it like silver, hmm, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? If you seek it like silver and search for it as, for, uh, as looking for some hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. 
Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of righteousness, of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you shall be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, that's temptation and sin, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, this connects back with verse 10 in our chapter here. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord? In Ephesians... Thinking about the will of God is not necessarily guidance for how you journey through the life necessarily. It's not, it's not so much about personal guidance. It focuses, it seems to focus more on God's saving plan to uni unify all things under the headship of Christ. Look back to verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is what God is doing. He's bringing all creation under the headship of Christ, unifying all things in Christ, making all things new again. Our behavior must be in light of this grand vision of redemption. The idea here is not to get caught up in the world's preoccupations. Do not partner with the sons of disobedience, he says. Know and walk in the Lord's grand redemption plan. Walk according to what God is doing, not what the world is doing. Now, what does it look like? Well, does that mean... Maybe communicating the gospel to friends, neighbors, family, acquaintances? Does that mean that we live in a way that displays our conviction that Christ is head over all? That He is indeed sovereign over all and worthy of praise? Maybe it means leading our family in this direction. Maybe it means being faithful as a part of the body of Christ. Maybe it means keeping Christ positioned in our attitudes and actions as if He really is the head over us. Maybe it means guarding the body and its unity in faith, or supporting the gospel ministry through prayer, through giving or our stewardship, through serving and through going. Paul instructs us to be wise, to live wisely. This is a way that we reflect the light and expose the darkness in the world. But then he tells us to be spirit-filled. Be spirit-filled. Do not get drunk with wine. Now, why in the world does he seem to veer into this issue of drinking and drunkenness? 
It doesn't seem at first like it fits there. Well, it could be because of some of the cults that were predominant in Paul's day that involved ritual drunkenness and frenzied behavior. And maybe that had influenced the Ephesians' behavior. Paul exhorts them to understand that this way of doing things is incompatible with Christian worship, including the Spirit-filled utterances that he refers to in verses 19 and 20. That they shouldn't be confusing what he says in 19 and 20 with these frenzied, drunken behaviors that are evident with these other pagan rituals. Some believe the agape feast had become corrupted by pagan practices. It's likely that a statement about common tendencies toward drunkenness, that he might have been uh, dealing with that. The wine of Paul's day was uh, of less alcoholic content than probably what is available today. And so it took a lot of wine for someone to become drunk. So essentially what was going on in the culture, if you were a drunken person, it was because you had intentionally set out to be that person. That you had to make an effort to drink to become drunk. And so that's what they were doing. It was common in the culture to become intoxicated at parties at feasts. It's like being on a college campus, right? Your life is a college campus. Paul admonishes them, do not be drunk with wine. Why? Because when you're under its influence, it perverts the mind from truth. It arouses impulses of desire. It leads the eyes into the path of error and corruption. Drunkenness affects your ability to make wise decisions, to live wisely. Hence the admonition that he gives us earlier in this passage against filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. A person whose inhibitions have been lowered because of the influence of some substance like alcohol, they are speaking things that they might not say if they were not under that influence. And certainly things that are not becoming to a Christian. So you see, it's always about the testimony. It's about the light that is evident in our lives or that we are doing a disservice to. Do not do this, he says. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Spirit. Be under the influence of God, not the world, or the things of the world, or the desires of the world, or the pleasures of the world. It's not that you can't experience those things, but don't be under the influence of those things. Allow the Spirit of God to take full control of your lives. Being filled with wine is debauchery. This word literally means unsavedness. It's unredeemable. It's not redemptive. Debauchery, emptiness, unsavedness, wantonness, licentiousness, beyond salvation. This is the opposite of redeeming the time, is it not? It forfeits, it forfeits this redemptive time to one of emptiness and uselessness. We'll take you back to Proverbs again. Proverbs 23 this time. 
Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. We won't read the entire chapter this time, but the last few verses of this chapter. Proverbs 29, 23, beginning with verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. We're not to be filled with the things of this world, not to be filled with wine and under its influence. He says we're to be filled with the Spirit. So what does this mean? Lots of questions, right? What does this mean exactly? Well, in order to understand what being filled with the Spirit is, let's talk first of all about what it doesn't mean. I'm going to do these quickly, so you just hang with me, and then we'll move on. But you should consider this to be uh, these things not to be being filled with the Spirit. First of all, being filled with the Spirit is not a dramatic, esoteric experience. It's not a second blessing, you know, that you should aspire to. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not some temporary effect that results in ecstatic speech or visions. It's not being filled with the Spirit is not trying to do what God wants us to do with the Holy Spirit's blessing in our own power. Trying to do something in my own power and give it a title as being from God and the Spirit. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, you know, sometimes people will give new revelation. You know, they want to add some revelation that God's given them. Uh, that's not being filled with the Spirit. That's being a heretic. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not the same as possessing or being indwelt by the Holy Spirit because being indwelt by the Holy Spirit occurs to all of us at the point of salvation. When He redeems us, the Spirit moves in to your life. Being filled with the Holy Spirit does not describe a process of receiving Him progressively by degrees. Every Christian not only possesses the Holy Spirit, but also possesses Him in His fullness. Being filled with the Spirit is not the same as the baptism of the Spirit, because every believer has been baptized with and has received the Spirit upon salvation. Being filled with the Spirit is not the same as being sealed or secured by Him, because this occurs upon salvation. So what is meant by being filled with the Spirit? Well, Let's be very plain and simple here. First of all, to be filled with the Spirit, you first of all must be born again, right? You must be a child of God. You must be adopted into God's family. This means that the Spirit who God has sent 
to apply the salvation that Christ has purchased for us, regenerates the heart, convicts us of sin, moves into our lives, illumines our lives, brings conviction and reproof of unrighteousness, and guides us on the right path. He is another just like Jesus, but indwells the believer, never leaving, never forsaking. He seals and secures our salvation, our relationship, our reconciliation to God. You must be born again. Jesus in John 3, 7 said this to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was inquiring, how do we get to heaven? How do we see God? And Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be a new creature in Christ. You're no longer a descendant of Adam, but you've been born again into the race of Jesus, of Christ. Secondly, being filled means, this implies, by the way, that you cannot be under the control. That you can be in Christ and yet not under the control of the Spirit. We learned when we were studying chapter 4 that it's possible for us to grieve the Spirit, to quench the Spirit's work. Now that's not because God is not more powerful than we are, but that God, in His infinite wisdom, works based upon our availability, willingness to cooperate with Him in many instances. But when we grieve Him, we cause pain, deep emotional sadness, severe sorrow, Hebrews 10, 29 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? It means to treat contemptuously, to insult, to mock. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, we see the admonishment not to quench the Spirit which means to extinguish, to suppress, or to thwart. So we avoid grieving the Spirit. So how do we encourage being filled with the Spirit? How does this happen? How do we allow ourselves to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it means putting aside all the things of the world, right? It means rejecting the things that come from the world that seek and clamor for control in our lives or to influence our lives. Putting those things aside. Walking in the light, not continuing to walk in the futility of our minds like the Gentiles, right? Before they came to Christ. The way that we come to Christ is the same way we follow Christ. We believe Him and His truth, and we live our lives in obedience to that by faith. The same faith that we placed in Him to redeem us is the same faith we put in Him day by day to lead us, to empower us, to provide for us. So it's by faith each and every day, keeping our focus upon Him. Andrew Wilson wrote in the Christianity Today, Danny, you'll appreciate this. He said, when you're sailing, is it being filled with the wind? Is being filled with the wind an experience or a habit? You get it? You're in a sailboat. You're sailing. Is being filled with the wind an experience or a habit? He says it's both. 
it's both and. It's not either or. He says, I vividly remember that first feeling of being seized and carried forward by a mighty power from elsewhere. But it was also a habit. If you don't put the sails up, pull the main uh, sheet fast, or adjust the jib, you won't go anywhere, even if the wind is blowing powerfully. Sailing, in that sense, is the art of attentive responsiveness to an external power. You rely entirely on the external power to get you anywhere. Sailors never imagine themselves to be powering the boat by their own strength. But you also have to respond attentively to what the wind is doing, which comes through cultivating awareness, skill, and good habits. Being filled with the Spirit involves the same, both and. We pursue the experience of the Holy Spirit, filling us, leading us. Paul uses the language of filling and drenching, drinking and pouring. We rely entirely on the Spirit's immeasurable power rather than our own strength to get us anywhere. But we also must develop habits. We respond attentively to what He is doing in and through us, a capacity that comes through awareness, skill, and practice. And he expresses this in a series of participial constructions here. He says, first of all, addressing, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. This addressing one another is dependent upon the previous phrase, to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. One result of being filled with the Spirit is addressing or speaking to one another, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now there's a little difference between these terms. They're actually pretty much interchangeable. They are forms of speaking to one another in the worship community. So what's he saying? Well, hymns in antiquity often were written in prose just as much as they were written in poetic form. So what you've got here is this picture of teaching one another. Iron sharpening iron. Encouraging and speaking truth into each other's lives. It covers more than just singing poetic compositions or utterances of praise to God. It includes the instruction that Paul assumes that his readers have been receiving. He knows they received it while he was with them, and he assumes they are continuing to receive it now. This musical speech is authentic. It comes from the heart. It's for the Lord's honor. And gratitude is an important and valuable component of our fellowship and our worship of God. In this text, we find great counsel for living faithfully and effectively in this culture dominated by evil. We simply can't relax and hope for the best. We don't just sit down and hope everything's going to go okay. We cannot withdraw and take up a monastic lifestyle waiting for Jesus to appear That's not God's plan for us. We must be alert, watchful regarding how we live. 
We must recognize the darkness that's trying to swallow us up. We must be sensitive to God's glorious plan and purpose that's always moving toward His final destination. We're to be disciplined and avoid being influenced by the fallen world and the passions of the flesh. Instead, we seek to live in a spiritual arena and grow in maturity in Christ. We sharpen, encourage, and exhort one another to grow in Christ and to honor God with gratitude and joy. He says we submit ourselves to another, to one another. We consider others more important than ourselves. This is hard, isn't it? It's not so hard when someone who is sweet and kind to you, you know, it's not hard to submit to your mother when she's treating you and babying you and pampering you. But when you run into people maybe that are a little bit temperamental or, you know, crude or difficult to deal with, it's kind of hard to submit, isn't it? Well, that's the thing that this world teaches us. Our world is teaching us to don't allow them to trample upon you, but stand up, stand your ground, and push back. You don't have to take that. But in Christ, all of our actions toward one another are toward Christ, aren't they? We do this as though we're doing it toward Christ Himself. You remember when Jesus was preparing His disciples that last night for His arrest and crucifixion and He gathered them together and He did something that was shocking to them. He came into the room. Now imagine, this is Almighty Sovereign God who has condescended from heaven and come down and, and wearing flesh, dwelling among us in this sinful place. And he walks into the room and takes off what he normally would wear and puts on the clothing of a slave. Essentially a towel around him. And then he proceeds to start to wash the disciples' feet. They were, they were shocked. No, Lord, you can't do I'll never let you do this. You can't wash my feet. This is beneath the dignity of who you are. And Jesus said, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. You can't understand what I'm about if you don't allow this. This is the humility. This is the submission that He's portraying here for us toward one another. Philippians 2 said, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affections and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, living in full accord and of mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is being submissive toward others, toward one another. Our culture of darkness encourages pride and arrogance. But Christ demonstrates and enables us to put our pride and self-preservation on the altar of sacrifice. 
I don't want to go there. I don't go there willingly, right? But Christ in me, His Spirit filling me, equips me and empowers me to go to that altar of sacrifice. He becomes the wind in my sails that allows me to live for Him in this way of humility and sacrifice. So, children of light, walking in light, reflecting light, exposing darkness, being wise, being filled with the Spirit. This is how it's done, Paul says. This is the call upon our lives. This is what he wants to do in us, that he might show himself to the world around us in which we live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your grace, for Your mercy. Thank You for Christ who makes this possible for us, that, Lord, it's not in us because we're defiant, we're obstinate, we're proud and arrogant and boastful. We want to live for ourselves. We want to be under our own influence. We want to be the God of our own domain. This is not what you've called us to. This is not what you've saved us for. We pray that you work in our hearts today because you have promised by your presence in our lives, Lord, to conform us to the image of Christ. I know this is where we're headed and that you're working these things out in us, working out our salvation. Salvation that points to that destination of being like Christ. So I pray that, Lord, in this season that we're in, this season where we celebrate your, your incarnation, that, uh, Lord, in this season of busyness and uh, maybe short-tempered uh, exchanges and impatience, that you indeed will make your light to shine through us, Lord, not just giving lip service to these things, but that our lives indeed might reflect your light and that we might uh, make wise decisions and choices, that we might be filled with your Spirit, that you will be glorified and exalted, or that we can continue to encourage each other in Christ and submit to one another for Christ's glory. For we ask it in His name. Amen. Would you join